Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. It's October 9th, 1919. And another remarkable event is about to be uncovered by Aria, Rebecca, and Ali. The Retrospectors. If you follow American sports, you'll know that several are overseen by a commissioner. And you might have wondered why that title sounds like something from law enforcement. Well, it turns out that's kind of deliberate because the very first baseball commissioner was a federal judge who was appointed in the aftermath of the nation-shaking scandal that kicked off today in history when the Chicago White Sox lost the World Series to the underdogs, the Cincinnati Reds. And for a nation-shaking scandal, it's astonishing to think that this whole scheme to lose the World Series in exchange for money is thought to have come about just a few weeks before the World Series was meant to have begun, when White Sox first baseman C. Arnold Chick Gandal and a gambler named Joseph Sport Sullivan met to discuss the possibility of Sox players deliberately throwing the championship. There's just something hilarious about hearing those names in an Australian accent, <laughs> yeah. isn't there? I mean, <laughs> it's not right. I mean, we should, we should just apologise to every American listening to this who already knows more than we do. <laughs> I was researching into this, and uh, one of the articles that I found was headlined, Forget What You Know About the Black Sox Scandal. And I thought, that is not going to be a challenge. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> because my sporting knowledge is poor anyway, but when it comes to baseball from the 1920s, you really don't want to ask a Brit. But looking into this... <laughs> It's amazing that it caused such a stir because it was far from the first time that the game had been fixed. Why was this such a big deal when there was actually a game-fixing scandal in 1877 when four Louisville players deliberately threw a game? There were purportedly also attempts to fix the World Series in 1903, 1905, 1914, 1917 and but actually, some people did know that there was a fixing scandal. It just wasn't the public at large. By the time the first game of the series began on the 1st of October, there were already rumours of a fix swirling among the gambling circles and among the sporting press. So every move of the match from the beginning was actually under scrutiny. Yeah, so bookies had previously had the White Sox winning the World Series over the Cincinnati Reds by as much as three to one. But the odds began to change amid quite suspicious betting patterns favouring the Reds. You know, this is the team that was widely suspected to lose and suddenly there's big money coming in supporting them to win the entire series. But as we finally got to that first game, then it really, you know, the, the rumours that were circulating began to become concrete when, in the very first match, after hitting a batter with one of his first pitches, which was a signal that the fix was on, pitcher Eddie Seacott went on to make just this series of incredibly uncharacteristic blunders. I mean, what a weird way to signal that the fix is in, Be- like to throw the ball and hit one of the batters. Like, I don't know much about baseball, but I don't think it's that common to just throw your pitch at one of the batters and hit them. 
This was the problem, wasn't it? Like, it became apparent to everyone watching that the White Sox were playing so poorly that it almost seemed like they were trying to lose. Which, you know, for people who were already on the lookout for a team that were trying to lose was a bit of a red flag. <laughs> um, and then also you have the amounts of money that were being bet. You know, if you're really trying to get away with this... I mean, A, you don't do it with the White Sox, do you, who are literally the favourites? I mean, I know that means that you're going to make more money because of the disparity between what's expected and what happens. But it's more high risk, isn't it? You'd be better off betting on a middling team who do surprisingly badly. Um, And secondly is the amount of money you then place on it. I mean, I know that if you're a bookmaker in 1919, then you're probably used to gangsters. But nonetheless, if anyone bets $270,000 on the outcome of a game series. You've got to wonder what's going on. It can't just be a hunch, can it? And that is the amount that the notorious gangster Arnold Rothstein bet uh, on the Reds to win, allegedly earning 350 grand in the process. And, you know, it was all done through contacts. You know, he was like, well, people know my guys. If I go in, they'll know the fix is on. I'm sorry. They knew the fix was on as soon as anyone betted that kind of money. One of the suggestions for why White Sox players wanted to get involved in this was because baseball players at the time were feeling broadly underpaid. But I did a bit of research into it, and particularly the White Sox, they had one of the highest team payrolls of the major leagues at $88,000, and it was more than 10,000 higher than their rivals, the Reds. So, you know, their players weren't underpaid versus the other players that they were about to face, nor were they underpaid versus your average person, because, say, the Hall of Fame second baseman Eddie Collins, who was mixed up in the fix, he was being paid $15,000 a year. And, you know, the average salary in the US in 1919 was less than $1,000. So this is big money that he was already getting for his sport. Yeah, but that is still being severely underpaid if you look at what baseball players are paid now. But isn't that them being overpaid? (laughs) (laughs) Sure, but there's a happy medium somewhere, isn't there, which (laughs) I think they were, in fairness to those players, aware they were worth. The problem was that baseball had come out of a tradition of an amateur sport. And at the point it had become formalised, because rather like cricket when we talked about that going to Australia from the British, it started here in England and then went over to America. I mean, it started as... I guess, like rounders and cricket and ended up Mm -hmm. as baseball in the States. The whole point was it's a kind of gallant gentleman's game that's a bit of fun and there aren't any proper rules. Once they started formalising the rules, one of the rules was, like, you don't play games on Sunday, you don't drink, you don't gamble and you don't get paid. Yeah, so there was this resentment from the players towards the owner of the club, who was Charles Comiskey, but there was also a lot of tension in the dressing room itself, to say the least. The team was split pretty much evenly into two distinct factions. One was headed by the first baseman, Chick Gandal, who was the ringleader of what came to be known as the Black Sox, the White Sox who participated in the fix, and second baseman, Eddie Collins, who was the faction that went on to be known as the Clean Sox, because they didn't participate. Mm. So it was Gandal's faction that met with the Boston gambler, Joseph Sports-Sullivan, and then they brought Williams sleepy Bill Burns, who was a gambler who was also a retired baseball player. But it was Gandal and the pitcher Eddie Scott who approached the gamblers and not the other way around. And what makes Mm. this important is that the whole affair has frequently been depicted as these wholesome American heroes. You know, baseball was really America's sport at this time in a way that it's not so much now. You've got American football has sort of taken that place. But you had this image of them being corrupted by these degenerate gangsters and the undertone of the ethnicity as well. Obviously, Arnold Rothstein, despite the fact that he came into the fix really late, he only came into it a few days before the series opened, 
he ended up being associated with it. Actually, Henry Ford, who obviously was very, very anti-Semitic, he had his own newspaper, The Dearborn Independent, and their headline read, Jewish Gamblers Corrupt American Baseball. Yeah. And actually, Arnold Rothstein's involvement was never technically proven. He was almost definitely involved in it. It's almost as if a notorious gangster who was then later (laughs) responsible for importing (laughs) cocaine and alcohol during Prohibition and heroin would somehow have people to obscure his involvement in the criminal enterprise. (laughs) Right. I mean, it's remarkable that there were any clean socks, really. Like, if you imagine yourself in that team and you're aware that eight of the people that you play with have succumbed to deficit protection on the um, fees that they're owed, Um, and if you're not being charitable, then corruption in the game that is your entire professional life, it must be really difficult to say, well, I'm not going to do that. I mean... The, the game is being thrown anyway and you're only for ethical reasons saying I'm not going to take the money but it's still happening a lot of people would find themselves thinking why not just take the money because it's happening anyway and it's so interesting to think that they could never have pulled off throwing the game without the clean socks because the whole point was that you had eight men who were trying to throw the game and the rest of them were playing the game honestly and that was the only way that it could be plausible if they'd all been you know tripping over and flubbing throws and catches (laughs) it would have been really really obvious so it really relied on the clean socks mind you they did lose the first game 9-1 which led the new york times to say in a state of quiet disbelief but you gotta imagine they knew what was up they said never before in the history of america's biggest baseball spectacle has a pennant winning club received such a disastrous drubbing after an opening game. If you were an observer, you could easily have been convinced that the games were being played fairly, partly because the Sox won games six and seven. It was a best of nine series. And the reason apparently for that is that they had been promised payment in instalments throughout the series, but they weren't getting it, presumably because as the gamblers were cashing out their winnings from each match, they were just reinvesting it into the next match rather than sharing it among the players, which is what they had thought was going to be happening. So they sort of turned on this gambling syndicate. They won game six and seven. Now here's where legend says that the gangsters brought out the whole nice family you've got here, shame if anything Mm. happened to it, to ensure that they threw game eight, which would have given the series to the Reds. But this is largely based on a single book, Eight Men Out by Elliot Asinoff. He writes that a hitman called Harry F. threatened the pitcher Lefty Williams. However, Asinoff later admitted that he invented the hitman character on the advice of his publisher to guard against copyright infringement. If you cast your mind back to our episode on the word Dord, we talked about copyright traps. You know, people inserting fictional streets into maps so they can tell if someone's copied them. Mm. Apparently, it was a version of that. He invented the character of the hitman so he'd know if anyone was copying his work without citing him. Good work getting us out of that trap for this particular episode. We actually did (laughs) infringe his copyright in absolutely everything else we've said so far. This episode first aired last year exclusively to members of Club Retrospectors. Join today and unlock a new episode this Sunday. Patreon.com slash Retrospectors. (laughs) Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.